Hey, everybody. It's Tanya Adlita, your host for Recovering Church Girls. On today's episode, I want to introduce you to Matthew Kimberly. He is the author of, I make sure there's no little ears around. He's the author of Get a Fucking Grip and one of my favorite people. If nothing else, you're going to love the accent. I'll say that much. Um, and I'm fully admitting that. He knows that I've got a weakness for that accent. So, you know, it's nothing that I hide. I want to introduce you because I find his perspective so interesting. The idea of applying the thought, what if there is no afterlife to the life that we're living right now? How do we choose to live in such a way that matters and that makes a difference right here and right now without all the, any extra things going on in our mind or in our psyche? So have I piqued your interest? Come on in. Welcome back to Recovering Church Girls. It's Tanya Adlita, and I have with me today the infamous Matthew Kimberly. If you don't know Matthew yet, um, first of all, you soon will, because his book that was originally titled How to Get a Grip is about ready to be re-released, entitled now Get a Fucking Grip which I love, and that'll be December of 2020, unless you get a chance to get over to uh, England. I'm getting a wave finger here. By the way, you can say December hi. 20, December 2019. 2019. This, I said 2020, it's, didn't I? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about my book. You're living in the future. You're living <laughs> we in the don't have to wait that long for yours. That's awesome. Um, hi, Matthew. Hi, thank you for having me. I am, you know, I've always identified as a recovering church girl. Uh, <laughs> like I found my home. Well, I am very, very happy to have you. Welcome home. And I'm just so excited for this conversation. We've known each other for years and we always have these really fun and interesting conversations that go in 17 different directions. And it wasn't until recently when I was on your podcast, How to Get a Grip, that I discovered that you've had three priests in your life, one of which was your father. That's so nice. with that kind of a like, oh, let's just dive right in, shall we? Tell me, like, so, how does, when you think my, of it, what is so that? So my dear father, who I'm incredibly close to and is one of the best men I've ever met, was the first priest in my life. Uh, the Anglican Church in the UK is a spin-off of the uh, Roman Catholic Church going back, you know, however many years it was, uh, when Henry VIII turned to the Pope and said, I want to get divorced. And the Pope said, no. And Henry VIII said, well, screw you. I'm going to become the head of the Catholic Church in England. And that was kind of the birth of the Anglican Church. Today, it's there's a common misconception that the Anglican and the Protestant Church are the same. It's not true. There's kind of high Anglican and low Anglican depending on who you listen to, because it's still gr greatly debated. Uh, even today, there are um, that it's kind of the middle ground is the safest place. It's, it's, it's dad would say he's far more Catholic. Uh, in fact, I think he, I think he, he does. I think he joined the Roman Catholic church recently. Um, that's another story political <laughs> reasons. He resigned, uh, from being a priest and joined the Roman Catholic church, but, uh, they kind of, the Anglican church, so it was kind of the middle ground between Protestantism, uh, and, Roman Catholicism uh, and so I was raised as an Anglican Catholic where which pretty much looks like Roman Catholicism it's a little bit less mystic um, and 
there's like the Archbishop of Canterbury is the, and, and the Queen or the, the King of England is like the head of the figurehead of the church instead of the Pope. Anyway, so uh, by the time I got introduced to my strand of the church, I was born in 1980, it was quite a nice place. You know, it was pretty soft, it was pretty gentle. Um, at least where I used to go, there wasn't too much um, didacticism. It was very liberal. Um, we, where, where I went to school, we, and I went to a church school, but we were very much, our religious education was understanding religion and not indoctrination, which is funnily enough what my kids here have in Malta at their Roman Catholic school. So that's another avenue that we can go down if you like. Uh, so church was generally positive. It was community, obviously very much so for me because my dad lived in the vicarage and I lived in the vicarage and um, babysitting wasn't really an option. My mother also religious, uh, goes to church every Sunday and Sunday school and I became involved and got baptized and confirmed and uh, all of this stuff. And then we moved, uh, I ended up going to a church school where I got confirmed age 13 so this is when you say okay my baptism the sacrament of baptism or christening is when your parents say we're going to raise our kids in the church and your confirmation which in my experience was aged about 13 you say okay i'm old enough to make this decision for myself now and you study for a while and you take this and that's your first communion Mm -hmm. uh, at least where, where I was. Uh, and then church remained a pretty regular part of my life uh, until I had a renaissance age 16 or 17 when I showed up for the music only. And that remains pretty, I joined the church, I joined the school choir age 16 after my voice broke and I, you know, wasn't a danger to anybody. <laughs> I joined the school choir, I loved that, loved a proper rousing chorus. And we sang proper <laughs> classical music at my school. It was, you know, Zadok the priest and Handel's Messiah and none of this uh, nativity nonsense. Uh, so it was good rousing music and a lot of fun. Um, but I just, I, I became disenfranchised with the concept around that age. I think by, by the time I really was able to make my own decision, being the son of a preacher man, being kind of innate, predictably teenage rebel, uh, renegade type who fancied himself as smashing the system, as I probably still do to a certain degree today, I started to assess, probably because it had been such a an obvious part of my upbringing. It was like, well, hang on, am I going to take this for granted anymore? Or am I going to carry my rebellion all the way through? And it caused me to look a little bit more deeply at what the kind of things I was saying, um, the kind of premise of um, religion. Also look to my dad's guidance. He still remains, I guess, one of the most influential people in my life. And asked, I didn't ask him, but I kind of skirted the issue. Not no, just because it's not a conversation I particularly want to have. It's not, it's not touchy. It's just never come up. But I, I asked him indirectly, what's more important? Is it more important that I receive the sacrament of communion? Is it more important that I believe in this stuff? Mm. Or is it more important that I live the general principles of, you know, being a good guy? And, and so through, through self-questioning, I decided that rather than buy into it, and, and I don't want to go, I don't know the material well enough to do a takedown of, you know, all the, the, the errors in the Bible, but it just seemed to me highly unlikely that whatever we were practicing was a, was a logical explanation for what's going on, particularly because having been exposed to other faiths and other belief systems and 
you know, the idea that there is one truth uh, just didn't ring true because it's quite clear that it was a circumstance of birth. If I'd been born in mm. the Middle East, I would have been brought up with a completely different set of beliefs, not principles or mm -hmm. values, but beliefs. As mm -hmm. I said, well, can I keep the principles and discard the beliefs? You know, or if I'd been born in the Far East, I may have had a completely different set. Or if I'd been born in, I don't know, the godless wastelands of the west coast of America, I might have had another <laughs> set of beliefs. I was really so, curious to see where your, your pin was going to land on the map on that one. Yeah, <laughs> well, godless wastelands are pretty much anywhere now. <laughs> so I made the conscientious decision. I thought, well, yeah, very often, having grown up in an environment which was nothing but parish politics, because I didn't have experience. My truth, my experience was that there were lots of good people at church. There were lots of pretty shitty people at church. Mm -hmm. There were, for everyone who, who was great, there was another person who, you know, going to church really appeared to be the only Christian thing that they did during the week. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe my own interpretation of that. I didn't need the mysticism or the promise of um, reincarnation into a heavenly kingdom. I didn't need that. Um, and I actually have become more strongly adherent to the idea that there is no heavenly reward. And that's made me a better human being now, I believe. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that. You know, it's well, and that's so in line. It's that we practice good things today Mm -hmm. um, because there is no, let's, it's, it's not hedonism. It's not, let's get our reward here. It's just, this is the only time we've got to make it count. Mm -hmm. So let's be really serious and thoughtful and critical in the best sense about what we're saying, who we're hanging out with, what we're preaching, what we're practicing um, in order to make sure that the only certainty that we have which for me is the fact that we're here today and you know, may not even be here tomorrow, let alone an, an everlasting afterlife. Um, let's make sure that we're doing the right thing today. So I discarded the uh, teachings and kept the principles, um, used Jesus as a role model to the best of my ability. You know, I'm not claiming, well, you know, me and him, I'm sure we'd have been great buddies. Um, <laughs> Uh, and something that my high school, so the three priests in my life, my high school chaplain, I went to boarding school in the UK, and the chaplain there was a very charismatic, flamboyant, eccentric character. Uh, and he used to say, like Jesus, I am a friend of sinners. Um, and I like that, you know, and I like, I like the idea that being holier than thou or, 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 or refusing to admit somebody into a particular community based upon a criteria, a slightly shaky criteria of, <laughs> you know, whether or not they bought into the same thing that you bought into when you were younger. Um, and so he was, he was quite inspirational. But as we speak today, Tonya, like right now, this minute, we're recording this on June the 12th, 2019, in a court room in England, as we speak, that self-same priest is being sentenced for multiple cases of child sex abuse or child sexual abuse, should I say. Uh, and, and so that was priest number two. Uh, and, and, you know, there's been a huge um, amount of publicity, mm -hmm. research, writing around the, 
I guess criminal hypocrisy or or hypocrisy and criminality within organized religion mm -hmm. not just the fact that you've got these slightly unusual characters who probably shouldn't be given access to young people um, exploiting the access that they do have not just that not just the fact that they are um, they're practicing hip. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really lenient when it comes to hypocrisy. I prefer to think of humanity. We all make mistakes. I'll tell my kids, "Don't smoke," and I'll go and be having a cigarette around the corner. Right? <laughs> I don't believe that. I, I understand the argument of hypocrisy, but it's also like it's okay to preach one thing and do something else if your intentions are right. I kind of believe that. I don't want to get down that that tricky ethical. Uh, <laughs> everything in mind has a disclaimer, right? Just uncertain about the whole thing. But this, <laughs> this, you know, this is kind of massive, blatant hypocrisy. And I don't know whether it's worse in the clergy. Uh, this this problem of sexual abuse is worse within the clergy than it is in any other demographic. I doubt that the data exists. You know, has anybody ever studied human resources managers to find out whether per right. capita there are more people? I think, um, but but that that became I couldn't ignore that because the third part it was the institutionalized cover up. It was like we're going to cover mm -hmm. our back, and that's been documented as well. You know, and we're going to cover our back rather than ensure the safety of the most vulnerable in our society, um, and that made me very, very angry because uh, my school chaplain was not the first uh, of my childhood priests to be sentenced to well, don't know, uh, I assume uh, a long custodial sentence, because then I had another priest uh, who was the local priest after my dad left the parish we moved he became a hospital chaplain and ministered to the sick which he loved for years and we went to another parish uh and so that parish priest also was uh is now currently serving a custodial sentence for child cruelty and abuse and stuff like that and so this you know and, and i wrote about this recently in one of my email newsletters and i had a reply back from somebody that said uh, it seems highly because i said i prefer logic to faith and somebody wrote back to me who was a devout Muslim and said, listen, I, I find it highly illogical that the actions of two individuals within an organization would be enough to put you off mm. this kernel of truth that, you know, your people practice. But it wasn't just that. Right. It was that plus. It was that plus. And more importantly, it was the fact that I had evolved my own thinking through self-examination and working out what's important to me. Um, plus that was just like the cherry on the cake. It's like, uh, you know, if I'm not sure about the, the actual core belief of this organization, that's one thing. But then the organization's leadership proves itself to be such fuckwits yeah. that, yeah, that was just kind of the cherry on the cake. And so now when... Can I keep talking? Is this okay? Do you want to ask <laughs> well, yes, except I have like 17 questions for you. Okay, well, let me keep going. already said. Let me keep going. So, and then... <laughs> So when I met my wife, who is Maltese, and Maltese is predominantly Roman Catholics, when I met her maybe 18 years ago, 17 years ago, um, Malta was probably 95, 96% Roman Catholic, and a lot of them practicing. You know, it's, it's diminished a little over the last couple of decades uh, with immigration and with modernization and things like that. Um, I knew that I was going to be faced with the question about whether or not I would bring my kids up in a Catholic faith, because that was actually a it was a requirement of getting married 
in the Catholic Church has to do something called a Cana or a Cana course where you have to prepare to be married and an yeah, Irish priest in Belgium <laughs> put the fear of God into us if you have disrespected the sacraments of baptism and if you haven't um, stuck with the sacraments of confirmation if you haven't then you have no place getting married in the church and I turned to Gail my wife and I said listen fuck it I don't care whether you get married in a church or not this guy's awful and I had that conversation with my dad and he rolled his eyes and he said, no wonder why people are abandoning the church in mm -hmm. droves because there's no inclusiveness, right? Anyway, so my approach to it, and I did again, coming back to hypocrisy, I got married in a Catholic church and I was happy to acquiesce to my wife's family's request that our children be baptized. And I then my friend said, well, isn't that hypocritical? Or, you know, isn't that? And my answer was no, because I didn't see it any more hypocritical than putting on a dress in a play, right? So I'm wearing a dress pretending to be a woman because it's inconsequential to me. Like, if it's important to you, great. I won't disrespect it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I am by not taking it seriously, but because I don't take it seriously, it doesn't really matter. You want me to say I'm a Roman Catholic? Great. Is anybody getting hurt by that? No. I didn't actually say I was going to be a Roman Catholic, I promise. <laughs> and so now my kids are doing it and I'm not going to confuse them. I'm not going to confuse my kids because they're five. The five-year-old is five. The 10-year-old is autistic. I'm not going to say, well, you're learning this at school, but let me tell you kids, there might be another way. I don't think that serves them. And when I put the five-year-old to bed at night, he says, can we say a prayer to Jesus? And I say, of course we can. That's a lovely thing to do. And it's always, you know, look after my school friends and look after mummy and look after the dog and make sure <laughs> I don't have nightmares. And what a lovely way to end the day. You know, let's just take a moment of reflection saying, look after me and look after my friends. And, and if, if little buddy there needs Jesus to be his friend, because that's where 99% of the messages are coming at him from. I don't want to be the one when he's five. Mm -hmm. to say hey maybe there's another way i just think it's okay i will maintain a very safe environment for him to explore and if he goes well what do you think at an age where it's not going to confuse the crap out of him i'll tell you does that answer you're quite it does i've been talking for 20 well, minutes well tonya it's been wonderful <laughs> speaking to you it answers it but then it gives me so many more questions go for so it I, oh my goodness where do you even start so i love what you said about your education provided just that an education, not an indoctrination. And I know this is something that you and I have talked about before, but just that there can be a very fine line. And that really comes down to the culture that's created in that same environment. So when you think of that now in the role of dad, and you know, you're having these conversations with your kids, where do you see that kind of playing out within you yourself and your family knowing that you're in a country that is very strong in religious holdings and you know not so strong on accepting anything outside of that norm what does that look like for you now in terms of education versus indoctrination um good question you're absolutely right about malta it's a it's a very homogenous environment uh, it's an island nation, which is very densely populated, very small, has a history of being crapped on from a great height by everybody from the Phoenicians to the Romans to the Germans to the British throughout history. They basically, any time an outsider has come in, it hasn't been good news. Mm -hmm. So they are very aware of outsiders. And so there's an underlying racism, um, conscious or, or unconscious, there is uh, suspicion um, and this deep uh, vein of Catholicism. So I think that that said, it's changing. 
you know, one of my concerns before children was I want my kids, because I'm a hippie and a modernist, and a peace-loving beatnik, you know, I wanted my kids to be exposed to kids who spoke different languages, kids with different skin colors, um, kids with different faiths. And that wasn't guaranteed in Malta 10 years ago. Mm. You know, depending on the choice of school, that could have been kind of guaranteed to not happen. Now, luckily with globalization, of which I'm a huge proponent, um, they do now have uh, friends from all over the world, from all different skin colors, with all different languages spoken. So I feel very good about that. And I think it's my duty, really duty, um, to continue to expose them to um, diversity. Mm. And say, look, if I, I, I'm not a great role model, you know, I will occasionally sneak off and smoke cigarettes once every couple of weeks. Mummy puts them to bed while daddy goes out and has too many drinks. Um, but I think from an intellectual honesty point of view, I, I try to be very um, straightforward with that. And so when they see me with, if they have black uncles, you know, if they have um, aunties who come around and you know, these are some of the best people they've ever met in their lives and they don't ascribe to any particular faith. Um, if they, you know, this kind of thing. So if I can lead by example in that respect um, and diminish the hate because it's a cult, right? Cult, the culture, um, culture comes from cult and, I, and I, or cult comes from one of, you know, the, the etymology obviously is clearly linked. It's, a, it's a, like this um, hermetically sealed little box of belonging. And we don't need it anymore. And, and I think uh, for a long time, religion uh, and particularly organized religion did a great job of giving people community. It still yeah. does, still does. Um, but we don't need it. We okay. don't need it at the price that we pay for it. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And speaking of that price, I want to go back to this idea that, you know, clearly it's something that you've reconciled with for who knows how long, because it was just almost like barely a footnote in your backstory about of the three priests, two of which are uh, being held accountable now for the actions that they caused way back when. Um, and, and finally, you know, having that accountability and having the um, just the clarity that comes around this idea of being held responsible for the acts of abuse against the children that they were responsible for. But that was said so quickly <laughs> that I'm like, wait a minute, there's a lot more there. What was that like for you when you first heard the news that not only one, but now two of your former childhood priests are caught up in the middle of this? Did you know any of it when it was happening or was it dropped on you as an adult and you were one of the lucky ones and it just came as a shock then? Like, how does all of that work when you're- Well, I was, I was certainly it? one of the lucky ones. I never suffered at the hands of any, uh, anybody in a position of power, full stop. You know, I've been incredibly lucky in that respect. Mm. Um, but and I isn't it sad that we have to say that that you're one of the lucky ones? Like we're talking about a church environment yep. and the lucky ones, like that just, it's, it doesn't even compute in my head. There shouldn't be a need to have a lucky one in this kind of environment. I agree. Sorry, that agree. just gets me all riled up. Okay, no, so back to the question. <laughs> no, no, you can, no, no, I agree with you entirely. This, it's, it's unfortunate that it has to be said, but you know, for, for clarity's sake and out of respect for those who did have uh, horrific experiences. Um, you know, I, but the, the footnote here or the important pre precursor is, you know, I, I, I was not 
an individual who suffered at the hands of any of these predatory priests. But I did know them uh, both well. Uh, and that here's the here's the and I didn't know anything was going on as as many people claim not to be. There is some talk about the school environment. Uh, the school chaplain, you know, the, the, there were other members of staff within this boarding school who were also now serving time for mm. similar things. And so there was a question, was there, uh, what's the word, cooperation or any kind of um, conference between them? Did they, did they know what the others were doing? Uh, were reports ignored? Uh, and this isn't a church thing, but it's a culture thing. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's related to that, you know, we're going to protect the good name of the school, right. or we're going to protect the good name of the institution um, by turning a blind eye or by moving people on instead of reporting them to the authorities, which it looks like happened in this case. Um, so I knew, that, and here's the funny thing, although not being aware of it, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, when it kind of came to light, me and my friends, obviously started talking about it a lot Mm. and all of us said yeah but we weren't surprised Mm. right so if you had to pick out the pedophile priest from central casting it was this guy Mm. right so we weren't surprised by it but we were all deeply shocked you know, it's kind of, yeah, well, obviously, you know, if you had to, right. if, if we were all, if we were gambling men, which many of us are, <laughs> it would have been, a, it would have been, yeah, no, no, I'm putting all of my money on this one. I don't care what the odds are. All of my money is going on this one being the guy who was, and, you know, we, we don't know who the victims are. Uh, the press uh, mm-hmm. in the UK have been very good at not releasing that. And we have all said you know we don't even want that to be discussed on the off chance that we get it wrong or you know mm-hmm. whatever but we also knew like what color hair mm. this guy was interested in you know kids with particular color hair because he played favorites and it was an unhealthy thing so um we didn't know but we weren't surprised right and that's may not have known intellectually but it sounds like there was some piece of intuition that was at play here Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. And like all manipulative and charismatic individuals, um, many of us were kind of lining up to get to hang out with him because he had the best mm-hmm. dinner parties because he was, you know, one of the members of staff who wouldn't mind if you had a glass of wine too many at dinner, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. But putting the pieces together now, and I think it's really, really, in the UK, there's an enormous focus on safeguarding now in institutions mm-hmm. like that. And I'm sure it's still a problem in many places, but um, I, I'm very happy that the environment in which I went to school is probably not available to kids in the UK mm-hmm. anymore. I can't say for the rest of the world, you know, but it certainly did inform me here. You know, my, like I said, my oldest son's got special needs and we heard about uh, a priest who did, who did special um, first communion training. First communion is like the equivalent of, you do it at like six years old here. Um, mm-hmm. And it's when you take your first communion. It comes before confirmation, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, a thing um, for kids with special needs. And my initial thought was, no, I'm not going to leave my. I'm not going to leave my kid. I'm not going to leave my kid, my vulnerable kid, with a priest. That was my initial thought, oh. and obviously, you know, my my case as well is, is confused because the single most dependable and important and influential person in my life is my father, mm. and that you know, and so it's like ah shit, 
but my dad chose this institution, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so I felt kind of bad about rejecting it anyway. But then there's also this, do you see, I, I'm waving my hands around trying to find the words. <laughs> I just can't see. Do you see what I mean? So it's just, it, it just, the whole thing gave me pause. Big, 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 big pause for thought. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and so as a result, it kind of vindicated, is that the right word? Validated. Mm-hmm. It validated my, my logical uh, decision that it probably didn't make any sense when the leading proponents of this lifestyle or belief system turned out to be deeply flawed individuals. Mm. And something I'm hearing you say, you know, kind of in between the words is focusing more on the character more so than the checking the boxes of the behavior. And there's a big difference, I think, in that. And so often organized religion and church culture tends to look at the boxes as indications or indicative of the character. And I I look at that system and I was like, that's totally flawed. You could be a really good person and never hit one of those check boxes that indicate you get the gold star for fitting our mold. So the fact that, you know, you could see that pretty early on and be able to delineate between the two, I think that's really um, not only admirable, but something that I wish that those who are still in the church religion would pay more attention to. You know, we've talked a little bit about the exclusivity piece within this, you know, again, to your reference about cult and culture coming out of the same or origin. You see that time and time again, and it's all about the system and the structure to get approval and to stay within this fold as opposed to the character that's really at play here. Absolutely right. And I think behavior is a good indicator of character. Um, But I also believe in the fragility of self-control and things like that, you know. So (laughs) um, I I think because somebody does bad things, it doesn't necessarily make them a good person. I think that somebody claims to be a good person yet does bad things despite that can actually make them a terrible person. And and it's a whole, there's grades, aren't there? There's like, Mm -hmm. for example, yeah, I if I get given, my wife is a very bad judge of character, obviously because she married me, but she she will say, and I'm proud when she says that. I think I'm doing the right thing when she says this. You know, she says occasionally to her non-church going friends when they challenge, sorry, to her church going friends when they challenge me, they're like, well, why don't you go to church? Why don't you believe? Um, and in one of Kevin Smith's films, it might have been Clerks or something like that, he said, well, hang on, hang on, the onus is on you to do the explaining, not me, why I don't, why do you opt in, not why do I opt out? Um, but she will say, look, he's probably got one of the most Christian, if you're going to use that word, guiding principles to mm. or philosophies. You know, I am, I will never, if someone gives me the wrong change, I'm never pocketing it. You know, even if it's a fucking multinational, if I'm at Walmart and the cashier gives me $2 too much change, I'm handing it back. You know, there is no question about that. If I find a 10 pound note on the floor, there is no question that I'm handing it in, probably to the person who's just gonna steal it, right? Take it, <laughs> I take it in Malta, for example, right? You find money on the floor, you hand it into the police station, you wanna get a receipt and a photo of you handing it over. <laughs> right? But I'll do it anyway, and that's, not always true of, and I know is a great little test ground for this because there's so many professed religious people here. You know, do I have a stronger moral code? Mm. Maybe not, 
but because I don't go to confession, because I can't wash myself of my sins every week, um, I do try to be aware. And I, like I said, I'm deeply flawed and the fragility of self-control is huge. You know, I've done a thousand awful things probably last week. Um, <laughs> but from a guiding principle point of view, I'm okay with mine. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with my ethics. Right. Well, in mostly, most of the time. Mostly. <laughs> well, and I love what you said earlier about this idea of when you got to this point of, of saying, you know, I, I don't buy that there's anything beyond this life that we are in right now. And because of that, I'm going to kind of double down on being here and now in this moment. And what can I do with the life that I'm living right now? And one of the things that came to me when you were mentioning that is that that's actually completely in line with the philosophy of Satanists because they don't believe in an afterlife. And it's this idea, I had this whole huge conversation with someone who thought that Satanists literally meant to worship Satan. And it's like, um, yeah, that's not actually what it is. <laughs> so it's a whole nother thing. But just that idea of there's so much respect for the here and now. And a lot of the philosophy in that is what good can we do in this moment, because we're not guaranteed anything beyond this. And, you know, I think that that's one of those things you see again within organized religion and in church communities there was an expression I remember in college of being so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, you know, kind of that idea of like, they're so focused out there that right here in front of them, everything's falling apart. Yeah. And I think it's great of that because I'm sure um, some of my uh, religious friends would argue that no, we're on exactly the same page because um, the reason, one of the reasons that we also behave well in life is because we want to get a place in heaven is because we want to get into the afterlife Um, and so they would say for the same for a different reason we're practicing the same thing right Mm -hmm. so my believing friends will say no i want to get into heaven i'm going to have more of a chance if i'm good on earth i'm saying i don't believe there's a heaven uh and i think our reward should be on earth therefore i'm going to make sure that every minute counts right Um, and what also because this time is the only time we've got in my mind, I'm not going to waste it sitting in church, standing up, kneeling down, sniffing the incense, because that, you know, if time is our most valuable asset, <laughs> then that whole ridiculous palaver of certainly, you know, listening to a, 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 a catatonic elderly man <laughs> drone on, and then you stand up and then you sit down, and then you have to turn around and shake hands with strangers, which just kills me. And then we- <laughs> Ridiculous. Else I, listen, I think ceremony really and tradition. Get out my water on all of us. <laughs> everybody, everybody do it. You know, do it. Do it if it makes you happy. I did enough in my childhood for a lifetime. <laughs> you know, three or four times a week, I was standing up, sitting down, sipping wine and swallowing wafers, and I don't need it anymore. Now, if you need it, great. Great. I am never evangelizing and saying, don't do that thing. That's not my position. I'm not trying to talk anybody else of it. I married a believer. I, 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 my best friends, my family are good church-going people. Um, and much as they, well, most of them don't try to evangelize me. I'm not interested in telling anybody to change their mind. It's just Absolutely. I'm okay. I'm okay with, with me and you be okay with you. Mm-hmm. That's, really, that's really important to me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know what I love? I love great church services. I love gospel music. Uh, I love the adrenaline rush. I love Gregorian psalm. Uh, I love I love the colors. I love the architecture. It's just the myth mm. I don't buy into. And it seems, you know... Uh, I've never met anyone who's been able to convince me that anything that's written in the Bible, anything that's written in the Bible has any basis in fact. Well, and I think the idea, you know, kind of piggybacking off what you just said, when it comes to the evangelical way of being, this is probably where I take some of the biggest issue in this space. Because along the way, we've lost our right to the individual spiritual journey or lack thereof by our own choosing and instead have been pushed into this conformity mindset. So, you know, there's just this piece that I'm kind of going, I have no desire to argue with you regardless of what I believe or don't, because I think that you deserve to have your own journey. And somewhere along the way, that's been lost. Yeah, yeah, I believe some things are good for people. Like, if a friend were to ask me, if a competent friend were to ask me, should I become self-employed or should I take this job with the bank? I'd probably, over the course of a bottle of wine or two, try to get them to see the light of the benefits of self-employment. Right, being in control of how you spend your time, stuff like that. Because I believe it to be true and right. And so, I'm sure I'll wrestle with this till the day I die. The, the people who are evangelical, and we discussed this a little bit when you came on my podcast, the people who are evangelical are doing it from a place of service and they're doing it from a place of good. And they are, gen if they're doing mission trips to you know, sub-Saharan Africa back at the end of the 1800s, they, you know, they did it because they genuinely thought they were saving souls. Mm. You know? So we can't even hold them in judgment. But if I get a knock on the door from an organization that says, hey, it's Sunday morning, would you like to spend a little bit of time talking about your life? And then you make a few inquiries and you find out that, well, there's actually a financial obligation involved in joining your church as well. And it's not, you know, this is prevalent across the United States, across Europe as well, the concept of tithing, the concept of uh, making donations, giving 10% of everything you earn to the church. And that's like one of the things that you must do if you're a believer. And if you don't adhere to the church, and I'm not going to mention anybody specific, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or anything like that. I mean, I did, but I'm not going to. You know, <laughs> the idea being that if you don't subscribe to this belief and if you don't give yourself up to the Lord, then unfortunately, you will not go to heaven. I've had, you know, I've been told this by multiple people of differing beliefs who genuinely believe they were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, but don't worry, you know, your children, the Catholic church, sometimes, you know, if you, if you, if you commit death by suicide, then you're going to remain in purgatory for the rest of your life. They believe this where I live. It tortures people. Mm -hmm. Um, if your child dies unbaptized, they, yeah, what the fuck? Oh my goodness. You know, um, if, if, um, if you don't, so if you don't subscribe to our religion, then we, I'm sorry, but we believe that for you, you will not go to heaven and you will suffer in the afterlife. Okay, so what's the solution to that? Well, you can become a member of the church. Well, okay, so what does that entail? What entails doing this, doing this, doing that? Oh, and giving us 10% of your income. That's extortion. That is <laughs> what's stopping me from calling the police and saying these people 
have threatened my children with an eternity of pain and damnation unless I give them 10% of my future earnings. Mm-hmm. That's a double fuck you from me. You know, that's yeah. wake up. Come on, you don't get to knock on my door on a Sunday morning and tell me that unless I give you money, my children are going to suffer for the mm-hmm. rest of their lives and beyond. That's not on. Um, and that's where I'd really like to shake people and say, come on, think. Mm. Think. You know, we can believe things, but then let's believe it for the... And, and I have no problem with my believing friends. Don't, don't wrong. You know, <laughs> this is, we're talking about the extreme examples here. Well, unfortunately, not extreme enough or not rare enough. Right. I was going to say, and that's, that's the downside, is that so many of the things that we've talked about, you know, for ages and ages, for decades, they were framed as the outliers within church communities. And more and more, literally every day, we are coming to find, unless you're living under a rock, that mm, no, it's really not the outliers. That's pretty much the way it's been for generations and generations. And people are just now starting to come to a place where they can talk about it and to be able to then have informed conversations perhaps for the first time for many of them to be able to say, you know, I've always wondered about this and I never was able to ask or, you know, fill in the blank. There's so many different pieces of this deconstruction process. And oftentimes it starts with the, the heartache, the pain, the suffering that's been caused by the church in the name. So of we have a, we have a mutual friend who was excommunicated from the church after 20 odd years of marriage realized finally that they were somebody who loved people of the same sex and this organization to which they had built their entire community and identity around turn around from one day to the next and said, see ya. Yeah. That's like, well, why don't you just pull the, not just the rug from under my feet, but the entire world from under my feet. Um, and I don't see any excuse for that kind of lack of humanity, frankly. And, and that's I when I said, that, you know, examples like that is when I say, I think that my, my code that suits me mm-hmm. trumps your code in that instance. Right. Well, and I think too, it's this idea of, something you mentioned earlier, when you were born into the family that you were born into, the choices were already made. They were already put into motion about how your worldview was going to be shaped. So there's something I think about that space too, of when you know, we come in as kids and we don't have any other frame of reference. That's why I'm still like so stunned and grateful for you that you had the experience to look at other religions in your, not so much Christian school, but religious school. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, I look at my site, I'm like, oh my goodness, everything was labeled as do not touch. That's Pandora's box. So, you know, even something as simple as keeping an open hand when it comes to education and conversation, could those be the, the building blocks of having a more inclusive environment that care for people instead of, what it is that they're doing or how the church can benefit from, from those people being in the pews. And the question is, how do you, we may be wrong, Tanya, you know, I remember having a conversation with uh, an Islamic, I'd say he was a fundamentalist. His extreme, his beliefs were, were very, very fundamental. He was picketing or protesting uh, at a big 
demonstrate. It was the biggest, one of the biggest demonstrations. I can't remember what it was about, but I was demonstrating in the UK. <laughs> It wasn't the poll tax, but it was one of these big, it wasn't the Brexit march, but it was one of these left-wing marches. Uh, I happened to be in London. We marched on Westminster, ended up in Green Park or Hyde Park, and there were, must have been pre-9-11, must have been, because people were being okay with them. But there was a lot of big beards and, um, you know, proponents of Sharia law. There was, and we ended up getting into a healthy debate about this uh, with one of these guys. And at the end of it, because I had limitless you know, ability to be argumentative, and so did he. Um, at the end of it, he just turned and said to me, well, look, let's stop this conversation here, because one of us is right, and one of us is wrong, and we're right. <laughs> and I said, okay. So on the, on the understanding that we may be wrong, Sonia, okay, so mm -hmm. with the caveat that maybe, maybe one of these people is right, maybe the Mormons are right, maybe the um, Jews are right, maybe the evangelicals are right, maybe the Church of England are right, maybe the Roman Catholics are right, I don't know. Um, on the assumption that our way might be better, right? Where we respect the person rather than the institution as the primary unit of focus. How do we go about convincing all of these people, these millions of people that believe, I'm not interested in convincing them, but if I were, <laughs> what approach would I take to say, no, no, what you're doing isn't right. Hmm. That's my dilemma, which is why I don't bother. And that might sound defeatist or narcissist, but if you don't believe in an afterlife, then it doesn't really matter, does it? As long as I create a safe and healthy environment for my children and I'm good to people and I treat people fairly as I would like to be treated and I stand up for what I believe that's right and I pick my battles, then picking this battle, the conversion battle, not for me. Mm. You're a good person. I like you. Let's break bread. Let's hang out. And I will happily join in your religious celebrations, as long as you don't mind if I don't take it too seriously. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I want to dig into but, that even But some people further. need rescuing from, some people need rescuing from abusive cultures. Like, that's, that's a thing, right? Right. And and I I would, if I was on a Greyhound bus sitting next to somebody who was fucking miserable because they were being forced into an arranged marriage or to go and do a mission trip that they didn't want to do or they, because they couldn't come out to their parents, I would show them there's an alternative mm. and give them my number. Say, if you ever want to talk through that, let's, you know, let's go. I'll show you a new normal. Mm. I will show you a heathen way of life which <laughs> might just make you happy because you don't have to carry the weight of mm. guilt and expectation in addition to all the other difficult shit that you have to deal with on a daily basis. You know, the right. imaginary ball hanging over your head, we can get rid of that. It's difficult sometimes, but we can. But we can, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to leave everybody on a bit of a cliffhanger because I want to dive into this piece specifically in our bonus segment because I think that there's something about coming back to ourselves and being able to find a place of enjoying what is here in this world in this moment depending on what that looks like. I mean, you know, you've got some that are going to go straight into the hedonistic way of thinking that everything has to be pleasure right now, that there's no such thing as work or, you know, whatever the case might be. But I think for those of us that grew up in this environment of elevating the martyr and of the self-sacrificial way of being, 
there is a big gap of even learning how to want something again and having some validity around the fact of this is what I want, this is what I believe, this is what I'm going to experience. That's a big transition to make. Um, so with that idea, I'm, I'm going to pause can I, can it. I, give, I want to give one final thought. <laughs> of course you can. I'm not anti-religious, right? I hope, I hope that much has come through. And if you feel that it serves you to worship a deity, to connect with a higher power, to be deeply spiritual, if you feel that it serves you to perform rituals, whether that's going to mass or going to synagogue or, um, or, or burning incense or saying prayers or taking pilgrimages, if you feel that that serves you, great, you know? I would just urge everybody, no matter what they're doing, like we, I say to my kids, say to my kids, why did you get told off at school? Because Timmy told me to break a window. Okay, but if Timmy told you to run in front of a bus, <laughs> that apply that same yardstick to whatever you're doing today. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because somebody told you to do it? Or are you doing it because it really serves you? Take a moment, do your rum springer. <laughs> familiar with that? I am. Um, I am. Right. But for anybody who's not, go ahead and unpack that. Well, I'll probably get it completely wrong now that I mentioned it. I was hoping you would. <laughs> I believe the Amish, did you say the Amish or the Amish? Were you Amish. Are? The Amish. I believe they um, actually, I don't, I don't know what the levels of um, uptake are on the back end, but um, they tell their youth in the Amish uh, communities, they say, listen, go and see the rest of the world. You know, go and, go and take this in with your own eyes. Take a year off, take 18 months off. Go and work in a heathen town, go and work in, a, in, organ, in, in an environment, go and party, go and drink. And then if you want to, you can come back. Um, go and do, do your own personal version of that. You know, go and say, what if this wasn't true? Could I have a fulfilling existence that served my important people and served me without doing these rituals or buying into these beliefs? Because the answer might be yes. Mm-hmm. And it might be an and. I think that yep. so many times we tend to think that things have to be one or the other. Again, reference the upbringing, everything was black or white. And in my own reality, in my experience, there are multiple shades of gray along the journey. And it's been an absolute delight to be able to hold space for that. So I, I can, I don't want to say necessarily pick and choose because it has such a bad connotation. But at the same time, if I can be connected internally, if I can connect with myself first, there's such a clearer way to be able to identify what serves me and what doesn't. And it's easier to let go of the things that don't and really celebrate and anchor into the things that do. So it could be an and, it doesn't have to be an or. Thank you for clarifying my <laughs> Well, this has been such a delight. I knew it would be. Um, and for anybody who wants to join us on the uh, the secondary conversation on this bonus segment over here, uh, please do so. Join in on the mailing list and you will have access to all of our bonus information. So Matthew, thank you so much. Um, once your book is out, I want a link so we can tag it into the show notes at that point um, because that'll be fantastic. And really, I may just have to hop over so I can pick it up early uh, at one of the airports in, in England for the summer. <laughs> That's right. End of August, it will be in every airport in the UK. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.